0: We'll be able to tell our kids there was a, a day in time, kids, before 2020, when people got up and shook hands in church, and we called it fellowship. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll get back to that one of these days. So good to see you this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Great worship this morning, church. So this morning, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 7, talking about facing failure. And it's for me, for preaching, it's been a real pleasure going through the Word and going through the biblical narrative this year. And uh, we're making some headway. We're out of the Torah and finally into the book of Joshua, one of the greatest books of the Bible because it has a great name, Joshua. Uh, but it's a fascinating book, just a, a military conquest. If you can't tell, I really like the book of Joshua. This morning we're in chapter 7. Last week we saw the nation of Israel finally going into the promised land. And just again, wrap your mind around what a Mo. What a moment this was for this nation, for these people, for God's chosen people. Forty years in the making, 430 years before that in the making, God creating His people, calling His people out, and then putting them in the land that He told them that, uh, told Abraham that He would give them. And finally, they crossed the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. Just a historic moment. So from chapter 3, we move forward, and and the people go on to Jericho, the city they had spied out. And we all remember the story of Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho and and Sunday school and the walls miraculously tumbling down. We we remember the story of Rahab, this woman and her family who God spared, who ends up being part of God's greater story of redemption throughout history. And then something happens in Joshua chapter 7. Chapter six ends on a very high note with this victory, everything going great. Jericho laying in ruins, God's people in the promised land, and then chapter seven presents this this sad truth, really a tragic truth, that people are imperfect. Can anybody relate to that? That people will fail. That people will make mistakes. That people, unfortunately, will blatantly sin against God and against others. And because of that, there are consequences. But there's also a, a right way to move forward when we face failure. Let's read Joshua chapter 7, verses 1 through 13 together. The Bible says, The Israelites, however... Remember, we're coming off a high note in chapter 6. The Israelites, however were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of what was set apart, and the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and scout the land. And so the men went up and scouted Ai. After returning to Joshua, they reported to him... Don't send all the people, but send about 2,000 or 3,000 men to attack Ai. Since the people of Ai are so few, don't wear out all of our people there. And so about 3,000 men went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of them and chased them from outside the city gate to the quarries, striking them down on the descent. As a result, the people lost heart. Then Joshua tore his clothes. And fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening, as did the elders of Israel. They all put dust on their heads. O Lord God, Joshua said, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan? To hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction. If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. What can I say, Lord, now that Israel has turned its back and run from its enemies? When the Canaanites and all who live in the land hear about this, they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. Then what will you do about your great name? The Lord then said to Joshua, Stand up. Why have you fallen face down? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant that I appointed for them. They have taken some of what was set apart. They have stolen, deceived, and put those things with their own belongings." This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They will turn their backs and run from their enemies because they have been set apart for destruction. I will no longer be with you unless you remove from among you what is set apart. Go and consecrate the people. Tell them to consecrate themselves for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are things that are set apart among you, Israel. You will not be able to stand against your enemies until you remove what is set apart. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning. I pray that it speaks directly to our hearts and draws us closer to You. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, again, just when things are going great... I mean, Israel, again, this, the nation for the very first time in history as a people has entered into the promised land. They're in the land God has given them. Joshua had miraculously led them through the waters of the Jordan River, the parted waters, just as Moses had led them through the parted waters of the Red Sea. They've completely defeated this fortified city of Jericho and just, just ransacked it. All is well and great. And don't you know that's when you're at your most vulnerable? When everything's hunky-dory and going good. So Israel's defeated by I. And and I think I represents the greatest threat and the greatest enemy that any of us have. It's, It's not just from the outside. But I think AI is representative of I. Your greatest enemy, more often than not, is the man and the woman in the mirror. And you've heard me say that before. And for us, I represents the flesh and the problems that that come up in our lives when we allow that enemy to creep in and get a foothold and just wreak havoc in our lives. So we're talking about facing failure this morning. This is really Joshua's first taste of real serious failure as the leader of the nation of Israel. It's the nation's first significant failure in the promised land. And the sad truth is that if you live long enough or if you do enough stuff in life, you do anything at all, at some point you're going to face failure on some level. Hopefully and prayerfully it's not a big significant moral failure, But if you do anything, you're going to fail at some point and make mistakes. And even sin. And If you're like me, you probably do most of that every day. So the the thing is not just learning how to avoid failure. That's part of it. But how do we face failure and and bounce back from failure when that happens? So first of all, looking at our text, there's three things to avoid concerning failure. The first is preventative and that's to avoid disobedience. I I think preventative medicine is probably the best remedy right when we can help now now i get tom picks on me sometimes for being a doctor and so gonna give you the backstory because he makes fun of me sometimes about this you'll hear him say that well, one day i was in walmart <laughs> and uh i'd been to the hospital and i actually had some scrubs on this was back during the pandemic i had some scrubs on i stopped in walmart And some lady stopped me, and she says, Honey, do you work over at the hospital? And I said, Well, not really, but I've been there a lot here lately. And she started talking about COVID and talking about some of her family in the hospital and talking about her own things going on. And uh, so I said, "Well, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you, son. And I come back around, and lo and behold, I run into her again, right? She says, Mr., let me ask you something. I really... (laughs) I really need some good vitamins. What would you recommend for me? And me, you know, being me, I said, well, I think the chewable kind are probably the best for you. So that's my doctoral advice for your health and preventative medicine. I assume she's doing well today. So Joshua 7 opens up. Again, it's a stark contrast to the way Joshua chapter 6 ends with this victory at Jericho. And the word tells us Israel was unfaithful. In other words, they were disobedient to God. Now, truthfully, it was only one man that was disobedient. One man that sinned against God out of this entire nation. But God considers the whole nation unfaithful as a result of this one man's sin. Now, you wonder why is that? Well, I think it's a picture for us today, really a picture of how the church is supposed to function, a future picture of the body of Christ where Paul tells us, when one member suffers, all suffer. And when one member is honored, all rejoice with it. That's the way the body works as God's people. And so disobedience is a primary factor leading to most of our failures on every level. Because disobedience is, in essence, what sin is, right? We've talked about how loving God is supposed to result in obedience to God at every step of our life and as we follow Christ. Obedient as individuals, obedient as the church, as the body of Christ. If we love Him, Jesus said we're going to obey Him. We've talked about that. And so in this story... They're disobedient. And because this sin is present, here's what we've got to realize. There are dire consequences for Achan, but also for the rest of the nation. And so even though uh, the disobedience happened, I think some of those consequences could have been avoided if Achan had done the right thing, even though he sinned in the first place. And what, let's, here's what I mean by that. Same thing that we've got to avoid is what Achan did next. It's deception. So it's one thing to, to fail. It's one thing to sin. It's one thing to be disobedient to God. But you get an opportunity to repent, right? Now, when you deceive, and Achan knew he sinned because later in the chapter, uh, he's going to confess to Joshua and to the elders that he took the items he wasn't supposed to have, and he literally hid them in the ground beneath his tent. He knew he wasn't supposed to have these things, so he, he hid them. And that, obedient, that disobedience for his sin... It had enough consequences itself. But then he added all the lies and the deception on top of that. And listen, when you allow these things to fester over time and you get more and more people involved and more and more people hurt through the process, all of these consequences of your one disobedient act really begin to pile up. And so because Achan literally hid his sin... Joshua didn't realize what had happened, and he sends men into battle for Israel, and Israelites are killed all because one man deceitfully hid his sin from everybody else in shame and fear. And so when we fall and when we fail, time is not going to make that better. It's not just magically going to disappear. Covering it up is not going to make it any better. Hiding it, lying about it, it's not going to make it any better. So in the long run, doing that really adds to the problems of that one mistake, and they compound over time. And so I think, biblically speaking, we need to be open and honest when we fail, as hard as that is, as uncomfortable as that is, confessing our faults one to another and finding, as James says, that healing and that freedom instead of the continued pain and guilt and shame and all the other stuff that we put on ourselves. The third thing to avoid in failure is discouragement. Discouragement is different than brokenness or remorse over your sin. We see a weak moment for Joshua. A rare moment where Joshua just kind of, kind of blows it for a moment. In verse 7, 8, and 9, again, Joshua doesn't know that someone sinned. And what he actually sees from his limited point of view is he sees his people running from their enemies, being cut down in the field of battle, and then the hearts of the people becoming Discouraged. And so Joshua himself becomes, as their leader, discouraged. And he resorts to a way of thinking that I think Joshua has grown accustomed to, a way that he's grown up and heard people talking and thinking over time. And he prays, Lord, why did you even bring these people across the Jordan? If only they'd been content to stay on the other side. Does that sound familiar? How many times did Moses say a similar thing? How many times did the people say, oh, if only uh, in that, pre- that previous generation, if only we had died in Egypt, if only we'd stayed in Egypt, at least they had food to eat in Egypt. Why can't we go back to Egypt? And I think often if we're not careful, we'll fall in the same thinking trap like we talked about a few weeks ago. Where when we face failure or when we experience a hardship or we've got an obstacle in front of us, and we say, God... Why did you even bring me here? Why did you even bring me to this, this point in life? God, I was comfortable in that other career. I was comfortable in that other place. God, I, I, was, I was great and fine in that other church, and you brought me here. God, everything was just, just peachy. And we do all the things we talked about a few weeks ago with these thinking traps, and we begin to catastrophize, we begin to come to false conclusions. And even when we fall, and even when we fail... Even though we do need to feel remorse, we do need to feel bad about our mistakes and learn from them. If we do this and we think this way, if we're not careful, we going to fall so far in discouragement and depression that we can't move forward. Now, that takes us to the next part. Because those are the things to avoid. But notice what God tells Joshua. There's things we're supposed to do. And the first one is and Joshua's whining there. He tells Joshua, stand up. Get up, man. I love it. Fortunately, God's there to tell Joshua, get up, arise, stand up. Why have you fallen face down? Now, the word used here for stand up or arise means to get up after falling or after being smitten or even after being wounded on the field of battle. And I think Sir Winston Churchill's words apply to Joshua in this situation. Churchill said, Success is not final. And I think Joshua was learning this the hard way. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal, but it's the courage to continue that counts. Joshua was totally satisfied, and I think complacent, with the success they experienced in Jericho in this first major battle. But this was the first major test of his leadership. And he he found himself literally flat on his face, as we often do, wondering, what am I supposed to do now? We've blown it. I've blown it. But fortunately for Joshua, God was there to say, hey, buddy, get up. There's work to be done. There's a mission to fulfill here. Yeah, I know it's bad. I know it hurts. I know you're discouraged, but there's more to be accomplished. So when we fall down... Yeah, for us, we have the voice of the Lord in our lives, right? We've got the Holy Spirit telling us to get back up, to keep moving forward. But sometimes we need a person also in our lives that's brave enough, that knows us enough to look at us and say, Hey, stop wallowing in your pity. Now, that's a good mountain theological word, wallowing. You all know what I'm talking about. Because we like to do that. We like to get in our mess and wallow in it, Right? And so we need somebody to say, stop your wallering, stop your whining, pick yourself back up by your boots and, and dust them off and let's get back on mission because there's things to be done. There's work to be done. So if, here, if no one in your life has, has been that voice for you, just listen to me this morning. Let me be that voice for just a minute. Get back up. Maybe you've been wallering long enough and it's time to get back to work, okay? It's okay. We know that we fall, we know that we fail, but at some point you got to pick yourself back up and dust your boots off. That's the first step when facing failure. The second comes from verse twelve, and that is that we we not only need to stand up, but we need to stamp out some things in our lives. So God tells Joshua, Israel has sinned. And again, I think this was news to Joshua. Joshua thought the problem. He personalized their failure. He thought the problem was his leadership. Or the problem was the cowardice of his people in battle. But it was actually a spiritual matter. And more often than not in life, our problems aren't necessarily these physical things going on. But it's usually related to some kind of spiritual matter, right? And so God tells him, I will no longer be with you unless you, important word, remove from among you those things that you're not supposed to have. And so the language God used here is really amazing. The word translated remove. Literally means to annihilate this thing totally and completely stamp it out and get rid of it. You see, this was the point of the conquest of Canaan. We read these chapters in the Bible, and we see God telling them to wipe this city out, kill these people, totally destroy all this, and we're like, this is just hardcore. Why is God, a good, loving God, having them do that? It wasn't just to kill all the people that were there or destroy the cities and things that were there to make room for God's people to have a place in the promised land. It was much more spiritual than that. It was to literally drive out the evil from the land, to drive out the darkness and drive out the false gods and drive out the pagan worship so that God's chosen people would be different, that they wouldn't be prone to giving their hearts to these false gods or any other god other than Yahweh God. And so God had them literally go to war against everyone in the promised land. All these people groups, all these city-states, in order, as this word says, to annihilate them, and completely stamp them out to remove the evil from the land. Likewise, I want you to really understand this this morning. There is a war that's raging inside each and every one of us. It's a war with the flesh. And it's not simply enough to feel bad about our failures or even enough to to get back up and keep moving forward and, and keep going on the way we've always been doing things, the way that we've always done it. No, we need to go to war. As the Apostle Paul says, we need to put to death the things of the flesh. We need to annihilate these things that cause us to sin in the first place. Pastor John Piper said this. He said, I hear so many Christians murmuring about their imperfections and about their failures and about their addictions and about their shortcomings. But I see so little war. Murmur, murmur, murmur. Why am I this way? Make war, he says. He says, if you wonder how to make war, go to the manual and don't just bellyache about your failures, but make war against them. You see, the greatest threat to God's people, like we said at the beginning of this message, wasn't the people of Ai. It wasn't all these fortified cities. The greatest threat to God's people was their own propensity to turn their backs on God as we would see them do time and time again. Likewise, our greatest threat, church, is not having to live in this sinful world. I know it's tough some days, but that's not it. Our greatest threat is not even Satan himself because Christ has rendered him defeated on Calvary's cross. Our greatest threat is our own corrupt heart. And if we don't stamp out the sin in that thing, it will try its best to ruin us at every turn. So we've got to make war. Lastly... We have to sanctify ourselves. God tells Joshua in verse 13, Go and consecrate the people or sanctify the people. We've got to stand up, stamp out, but we can't forget the sanctification process. This literally means to set apart from everything else. And so we are positionally sanctified when we come to faith in Christ for the very first time. But we're also progressively sanctified as we become more like Christ over the course of our lives. And Jesus best explains this in John 17 when He's praying to the Father. A beautiful prayer. Go back and read John 17 and the way that Jesus prayed. And He tells the Father, He says, for them, talking about us, He says, for them, Father, I sanctify Myself. I set Myself apart for this purpose, to go to their cross. I sanctify Myself that they too may be truly sanctified. And Jesus says that we're to be sanctified by the truth, which is God's holy word. Now, this is why I get up here and I tell you, uh, this is something that I preach to you, that you have to be in God's word every single day. It needs to be on your lips. It needs to be in your mind. It needs to be getting down into your heart because I believe that you cannot grow in grace and you cannot grow in sanctification apart from God's word. See, how can you know your deficiencies apart from the Holy Spirit revealing that to you through the truth of God's Word? How can you uh, uh, know how to be more like Jesus if you're not studying His nature and character that's revealed in God's Word? How can you know how to make war against the deeds of the body and the deeds of the flesh if you're not studying the the manual for spiritual warfare in God's Word? You don't know how to bounce back from your failures and, and rest on God's promises If you're not in the word, which says very clearly, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And do what? Purify us from all unrighteousness. We've got to be in the word. So this morning, where are you at in all of this? It's a long line of places to be. From disobedience to sanctification. But is it time for you to get back up after being down for too long? After being on the sidelines and out of the game for too long? Is it time for you to start taking your sins seriously and begin to stamp out and annihilate those things in your life that are separating you from God and keeping you from serving Him the way that He wants to use you? And just get rid of them once and for all. Is it time for you to get serious about your sanctification? And get serious about being in the Word and getting into God's Word until God's Word gets into you and begins to change your life. Stand together as we close in prayer this morning. Father, this morning we, we thank you for very real stories, God, that we can relate to. We can relate to these saints of old failing and having problems. And God, I thank you that you give us the remedy for all of this right here in your word. And God, this morning, I'm just asking that your Holy Spirit would begin to search our hearts and search our minds, Lord, and just begin to reveal to us anything that's in the camp or anything that's in our heart that needs to be stamped out this morning. God, I pray that you would remove anything that is standing in our way between you and us, having a perfect whole relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you'd sanctify us. Lord, that you'd remove our sin and you'd make us more like Jesus every single day. God, give us the discipline to get into your word daily and spend time with you. Father, if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know you, they've been disobedient, they see their sin, they need a relationship with Jesus, I pray, Lord, they'd make that decision this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning as we sing a song of invitation, if you want to come and pray, if you need to talk to God about some stuff in your life, if you need to share a decision that you need to make this morning, why don't you come as we sing? Thanks for listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast. Please subscribe, but also join us live in person on the Court Square in Barberville or find us on YouTube by searching FBC Barberville on Instagram at first underscore Baptist underscore Barberville on Twitter at Barberville FBC or on our Facebook page, First Baptist Barberville.